And we're live. Okay. Welcome back to the Coyote Cast. Uh, Ish is here with us again. We're doing part one after the intro of the Generations of Democracy. I think we'll probably hit like most of the first and second chapters of the book. Um, we actually did an outline like this podcast is always unscripted. So maybe the first time there's like a legitimate outline, um, but just kind of like the high points of first two chapters. I think we'll just kind of bring them up and then have a discussion from there. So I don't know if you have any opening remarks or anything, no, or if you just want to hop in, like, <laughs> well, I, I, outline, think, but... I, I think it's good. We, we have an outline. Um, if anyone who heard the first, you know, the first, uh, episode or the intro episode, um, there, there's sometimes so much to process in a conversation about democracy or more broadly like politics. Um, and kind of having these like talking points allows us to walk through several ideas in a little bit more of a structured way. So, um, hopefully to the advantage of, of the audience to be able to follow a lot of these dense ideas. Why don't you, okay, before we jump in, I actually, I want to hear just what your overall impression of the book is so far. I've been loving it. Um, I think it, you know, there's so many things that happen around us that you don't necessarily have the words to articulate. Um, and obviously having people who are, I believe all of them are Harvard professors, uh, have very, um, very precise, but not overly cumbersome or overly complicated uh, um, rhetoric makes it very easy, I think, for a reader to follow. So, I, I mean, I, I think anyone with like a ninth grade, 10th grade reading level can um, absorb a good amount of this book. Um, and it's, it's honestly inspiring, um, like reading this book in terms of how I don't, I guess complex, I mean, complex is, is a, you know, a positive connotation, not to say it's complicated, but a complex, uh, system and how sophisticated our system of democracy really is in order for it to function. So when it hits, this book hits on so many different levels, of our society and the role that each of them play that when they're able to map all of that out and show you where, you know, where the pain, like where, where's the challenges and opportunities in our democracy, it, it really crystallizes your vision and kind of makes you see the world in a much clearer lens. Um, and prior to that, I mean, it's not to say that you're just like completely blind, but prior to that, you, can feel a little bit disoriented and not knowing where you're supposed to engage with your society or, or where you're supposed to uh, uh, work or how you're supposed to respond to certain events. Um, I, I think maybe the, the closest parallel that most people have is like, if, if you're part of like a student organization and every student organization should have like a constitution, um, but no, like who reads the constitution for the student org? You just signed up because your buddy's in it and just sounded cool, right? Um, but when you actually go through the constitution of your organization, you're able to actually participate in that organization far better and understand its, its goals and its mission and its strategies and its priorities 
if you actually see that constitution, you actually, you know, carefully read through it. Um, and that's, that's what I, th- I feel like this book is doing. It's taking, it, you know, it's not like it's, it's directly quoting the, con- the U.S. Constitution. I think it kind of uh, um, gives, there is some reference to, to constitutional rights and whatnot in the book, but it expounds upon those ideas in a very practical and very live player way, which is cool. Five five minute okay. response to perfect <laughs> one line question. No, 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 that's yeah. good. I love that. That's your response. I think for a lot of this conversation, I'm probably going to play the devil's advocate. Like, I just think that's what's going to happen. So, okay. I mean, I'm going to try to push back against some of the things I think that the book says. Not everything. I agree with like the general message of a lot of the book, and like I agree that it's very interesting. Uh, like the way that they bring topics up, the topics that they discuss. But I think I'm going to push back a little bit on some of the stuff. I, I think we will be fulfilling the, <laughs> the the goal of the book is that we are supposed to be able to push back. If, if it's, if, if our, if everyone's too agreeable, I think that's a, that's a, a sign of degeneracy. Um, right. So <laughs> I think we're doing what we're supposed to be doing. Um, so, uh, I mean, so I'll just say yeah. in general, mm-hmm. I think, I think that a lot of the critiques of the book are primarily targeted at the right more than the left. Now, I mean, maybe you could argue that more of the blame should be targeted at the right instead of the left. But I just think that in some ways there's like maybe some blind spots in this book or like that they kind of pony out a lot of, uh, I don't know, sort of like tropes or like straw man arguments against, uh, yeah, that, that, right that politics. That is actually a really, a really, really, uh, good point. Um, and I think the word Trump calls it is the silent majority, how you have, uh, um, a large segment of the society, that or this, this is I get this is my understanding of what the silent majority is that doesn't feel represented doesn't feel heard and then you have this populist figure rise and uh, and, and and it's interesting because um, I think it's Calhoun was the first chapter yeah Calhoun where he, yeah. he's talking about uh, the decline of participation uh, and decline of equal citizenship loss of confidence and if if you're saying that if you're saying that it's only the poor un, uneducated youth minorities that are voting less and don't feel heard then what about all those people who came and um didn't feel represented by i guess the grand old party and the democrats so where where is this book categorizing those individuals who are not finding these movements resonating with them. Um, and also, I guess there's, with everything that's happening right now on Twitter, right, where you have Elon Musk coming to the reins and where you had pretty much left, left-thinking individuals shutting down Twitter accounts and not wanting dissenting opinions, it's very interesting to see that, you know, the right is coming back and saying, hey, like, you have 
completely pushed me off the table and said, I can't participate anymore. Um, so <laughs> yeah. I've, so two things, yeah. I just, I want to say two things. Yeah. I think we're definitely going to get back to Twitter and just like media in general right. pretty quickly. Yeah. But the way that they handle populism is very fascinating to me because mm. it seems that they're very, um, almost afraid, very negative towards populism. But, you know, I was thinking like, popular, okay, isn't that sort of like democracy? Like, so I, I just looked up the definition. So refers to a range of political stances that emphasizes the idea of the people often juxtaposing this group against the elite, which is very fascinating because that's kind of the demos that they talk about in democracy. They're talking about like the will of the people, the voice of the people, the right to vote. But then they come out and they strongly condemn all these populist movements. So it's like, do they just not like the way that a populist movement is expressing itself? Or I think so. I just think there's a contradiction sort of in their some of their logic there. Well, I, I would push back and, and, and say that in order to have an effective democracy, you need to have good moral citizenship. Right where there there is a sense of that there is something called right and wrong. There is integrity. That if you have a populist movement that completely disregards right from wrong, honesty, facts, um, then that form of populism, I guess, is is incredibly dangerous. Um, and having strong convictions in equality, uh, freedom, um, I think necessitates to have good moral character like it's it's hard to imagine an individual who is who strongly defends freedom or someone else's freedom but has poor poor moral character so for example and we always use the no, no harm principle if if we want to protect people's freedom we're doing it under the assumption that that person is not going to cause any harm but someone who's immoral or um has has I guess I'm not sure if immoral beliefs is, is is a technical term if it's the right term, but then you could be encouraging people to be causing harm, right? Um, uh, through freedom, saying, "Well, I have I have the freedom to do whatever I want to to other people," right? But that's a violation of what how how we're supposed to understand freedom. Mm -hmm. So, I I mean to push back, obviously, I I think the reason why. Um, there, there, there's a pushback against populism. There's a pushback against the right, um, is because there has been moments where um, the work, and I, this is where I guess I, I agree with the right or I agree with the left on on certain issues, in in terms of like you know science, you know scientific research, um, in, in terms of um, honesty and integrity, um, on on certain facts that um, I, to my understanding, the the right has completely like disregarded right and i think the most obvious example recent example is like talking about covid right where people just outright say covid is a hoax right now you know i come from a medical family right and you know i was getting the vaccine whether i was right or left right um yeah but um you can have some criticisms of modern medicine right we, we can't just look at take modern medicine medicine wholesale and i don't think that's just something to do with the right or left or anything to do with Fauci 
but just like talking about the hospitals, the system, how do doctors prescribe things. I mean, there's numerous instances where, you know, patients come out and they say like, well, my doctor was wrong, right? Or he, he over, over prescribed, prescribed or said I had this need to do this procedure that I need to have done or even dentists, right? So I, I think there's definitely issues with, with the industry, but to say, to outright say COVID is a hoax, right? Where there are obviously lots of data and statistics proving that people are, are, are being harmed by COVID. Um, yeah. Two, there's lots of examples of uh, um, personal examples of knowing people who have passed away because of COVID. And on top of that, three, looking at other countries which are outside of our political sphere and outside of our political influence, reporting very similar information. Mm-hmm. So the right has not just put themselves against the left. They put themselves against, I would arguably say, the entire world, right, on, on a lot of issues. Um, where I guess the rest of humanity in the world is like, no, you know, we think you're wrong on this one. So, yeah, but that's that's not to discredit. I don't want to discredit the right on on their ability to make certain points and certain claims about the left, because I think the left has been aggressive um, and has overplayed their hand and have infringed infringed on certain rights of individuals um, on the right or more broadly, even all citizens, maybe left and right. Um, that the, the yeah. actions they shouldn't have taken. So I want to come back to that. Maybe we'll put a pin in that okay. one. Okay. I think COVID is such an interesting thing. And I think that that the influence of COVID is in this book too. I think, I mean, they must have written this relatively recently. I think so. Because you can feel that COVID is still kind of in the air with the book. Yeah. But yeah, for sure, there's a lot of... The political thing with COVID is very difficult, too, I think. And like our definitions of right and left, like I think a lot of times we see like certain types of media and frame that as like like a whole group's opinion. So like I think you could probably cast most of that, like what you're describing onto particular meat like safe like fox news or something like that like i think that would be like the like scapegoat for that type of media because it i mean it's interesting even if you look at trump's stance even if you considered him right which i mean i guess now he is the face of the right to some extent <laughs> even though he is i don't know yeah he, i mean he's not he's very much not traditionally right but even if you look at his stance I mean, he was like key in the push for a COVID vaccine and he still claims that as like one of his big achievements. And it's interesting that like he's had a falling out with different people on the right over COVID vaccinations. So it's just like a strange and complex topic. But okay, pinning that, just pivoting back to the beginning. The one last thing I want to say in the intro is even the whole premise of the book, I find very interesting that there's it's called Degenerations of Democracy. So they're basically calling back to a time that they think that democracy is better. However, I would just want to like ask them, when do they think this time of like a well-functioning democracy ever occurred or like even a better functioning democracy occurred than we have now because they're constantly, it was interesting. They pushed, so like they pushed back on the make America better again thing and called it magical thinking and said like 
Okay, so they said like, oh, they're hearkening back to this golden era that never was. And it's interesting too, they talk about how democracy has only been increased by expanded voter voter rights, expanded human rights, rights for minorities, rights for LGBTQ+, that that's only improved democracy. So my question is like, when is this perfect time, even though we continue to see expanded rights, like greater numbers of voting, what are they saying democracy has degenerated from? That That is, I think, an, an excellent an excellent observation um, that I, I honestly didn't come to the table with, with that, uh, 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 what's it called? With that like insight, I guess. Um, yeah, I, I think that's a, that's a very, very interesting point to, to call out because like you said, there has to be a point of reference in terms of where the democracy is degenerating from because if it's degenerating, then obviously that means there's a point of departure or, or a point in time that in which the democracy was better, right? So if you're looking at a inverse relationship graph, right? If you want to look at, you know, as you go further in time, further along the x-axis, you know, the slope goes, you know, uh, more and more downwards, degenerating down, it's going down. But if you go back on the x-axis and you go to the left, then it's it was less and less degenerate or more pure. Mm-hmm. I actually looked up the, the, I guess the antonym of degeneracy or one of the antonyms is, is something is more pure. Um, yeah. I'd, yeah. I just think that was, yeah. that's just something that stuck out to me, but I think it speaks more to like the public perception of our democracy. Like it feels like, we are in a democracy that has degenerated, or at least that is like, that is the feeling that's in the air. That's, that's message, what's talked about. That's the message that's being pushed. I mean, I can't remember if it was the Washington times or the, the New York times, but it says like democracy dies in darkness. That's going to ever pull up the New York mm-hmm. times. It'd be right there at the top. And I'm like, man, that's kind of spooky right now. I, I don't know if I want to hear that. <laughs> um, yeah. But that's definitely the message that's being pushed. It's like, well, I mean, they're using the example of like the Capitol Hill, the, the people storming Capitol Hill. Um, you, I mean, I think I, I mean, I, I'm not sure if I'm getting too deep by, by saying this, but I think the people's portrayal of Donald Trump, like everything from like the, 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 what's it called? The uh, political cartoons to when there was protests, mm-hmm. like, you know, those big like blow up like balloons of like Donald Trump. It's like, you know, I, I think as a people, we, we should definitely, we're, we're definitely allowed to speak out against our president, right? We were still, our free speech is still protected. But I mean, as American citizens, right? And if someone is voted into office by the law, right? Fair and square, there still has to be maintained a level of respect for, for that president, right? Um, and even your decorum for disagreement has to be respectable and i think that's one of the things that the book says early on um uh, um let me see if i can find it youth there was just a beautiful quote i don't have it but it was pretty much along the lines of um that you have to maintain someone else's dignity and 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 respect when when you're addressing them even though you, you disagree with them 
And I, I don't think that was lended um, to the, and it's, and it's very interesting. Like I, I watched Obama one time, he's being interviewed. Um, what's the name of that one guy? I think his name's Zach. He, he, he acted in the hangover as like that weird dude. He hosted. Oh, Galifianakis. Yeah. Yeah. He had the baby in the Between hangover. Between two ferns. Yeah. So he's, Is that what you're referencing right now? <laughs> I think so. Um, yeah. He, he was sitting with Obama, right? And he's just saying these like outrageous things. He's like, okay, can I call you Barack or something like that? He's like, you can call me yeah. president. So Obama, even in a, in a funny interview, he's still maintaining. He's like, you know, I'll, I was still your president, right? Like I'm the president. Of the right. And like even um, that one show, House of Cards, there's a famous scene, right? Where some girl, she's like sitting down. Everyone's standing up. And he, she, she says something to the president, like a question or whatever, right? And the president comes back and says, like, when you're, you know, when the president is speaking, no one sits, right? So it's mm-hmm. like, you know, these kinds of basic norms about our presidency um, is, I think, essential to our democracy. So, um, yeah, and people say, like, not my president, right? Like, people were saying that. It's like, no, he is your president. He's currently representing... Well, in some ways, I think the presidency and, well, particularly Trump, have almost begun to operate as a scapegoat for the nation. Right. Like, (laughs) cast all your sins on the president and let's sacrifice him at the end of every four years or something. Like... No. Be it. Yeah. So, okay. My opening remarks are done. Um... We can go ahead and jump into it. So the first, uh, it's like, it's laid out into little subjects with like yeah. subtitles within the chapters. So yeah, democracy is a telic concept. Um, yeah, I the background of these guys is in philosophy. So they're using some fun philosophy words. So the definition of telos is just having an ultimate object or aim. Um, and I think how they, the quote I have for this is, Democracy is a matter of purposes and ideals, not merely conditions or causal relations. It is defined by standards that can never be met. So I'm I'm on board with that. I like that. Um, yeah. Do you have thoughts on that? Well, um, I I think it sets the the goalposts for the conversation, um, and. Authors put forth the notion of either moving towards an ideal democracy or moving away from it. So, yeah, and I, I think that gives us flexibility um, as a people, um, but also in our conversation to uh, uh, put forward specific ideas, to put forward um, so- certain systems, but we can also renege some of those um we can renege some of those uh, ideas that we put forward, right? So likewise, I mean, we have certain amendments or we have certain, um, um, yeah, like we, we have our Bill of Rights, right? And then we added on amendments and, you know, we can add on to that document and we can also remove certain um, amendments. Um, so that that's, it, it shows that it, it's a living document. It's a, it's a living society mm-hmm. and, you know, 17th century or 18th century America is different than, than 18th versus 19th versus 20, 21st century. And then for, for how, however long the, you know, you know, the democracy, whatever goes. Um, yeah. I think the one thing 
that's left open-ended in that quote, and they, they go on to kind of describe it, but it's like, what is their ideal of democracy? That's also good. And so I think you yeah. could put forth, like, like, uh, I, like liberty or equality or pursuit of your own good. Like, maybe that would be the few things that we would we would say in the United States. Um, I think there's an interesting tension potentially between like liberty and equality or depending on what type of equality that you're striving for. Right. To actually know if we're making quote unquote progress, right? I mean, progressives, the word progress, it's like, mm-hmm. um, how do we know that we're actually rebounding from generacy? And actually making uh, baby steps towards, you know, improvement of democracy. Um, the you know we need those metrics, or we need to have those. Uh, um, we need to have a method of of tracking our our work. Um, so yeah, I mean it, it it can go both ways. I mean it's great to know that things are flexible and things are dynamic and ever changing. But at the same rate, we, we need to have some level of certainty that things are objectively better and objectively moving. Um, and yeah, what do you think those? I like, think so. I had someone. If you had to yeah. say like a metric or something that could be sort of, yeah, that could be measured. So I, I think I think ultimately I, I think something to to. To understand, I, 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 I want to answer your question, right? This might be a long-winded way of, of answering your question, but I haven't forgotten your question. And then, what is the metric to knowing that things are progressing? I think we can't talk about our democracy without talking about the origins of the people who founded the democracy, right? So you're talking about, uh, um, uh, I think Anglo-Saxon is the is the right word or the right terminology. Or um, more broadly speaking, uh, Christian Europe uh, uh, in the age of exploration, moving westward um, and, and and colonizing uh, colonizing the Americas, um, they had uh, uh, they had a value they had values and belief systems. I mean, prior to Enlightenment and prior to all these things, they they, they still carried with them uh, their Bibles. They still carried with them their their faith and their hearts, right? Um, so I think democracy was ultimately born in terms of fully realizing those beliefs, um, and, and following their, um, following their scripture, um, and doing it in the best way possible that they understood at their time. So, um, we currently live in a secular society, which means that although my faith or your faith can put forward certain ideas and we can contribute that into the constitution and make amendments because that's the only way that you and me can see each other as full citizens and recognize when each other as equals, right? Because the moment I become one identity and you become another identity, then there's ultimately going to be a clash and we can no longer work together. So that constitution becomes that glue for us to work together. So I think ultimately for us to know that our democracy is on course and it's on track. I think having that higher authority through scripture um, is a great way to um, to see that we're we're moving on uh, the right direction. Now, I think that can rub a lot of people the wrong way 
who are also Americans and, you know, feel very uh, close to their uh, country and their democracy and saying that, no, this isn't a Christian nation. This isn't a theocracy. Like, what are you talking about? Um, but I, I think as much as we try to secularize, you know, state from church, um, at the end of the day, when, you know, we're, we're off from work or it's Sunday or it's Friday or it's Saturday, um, those beliefs are, are very, very, still very powerful. Um, and, um, I mean, we still see it today. I mean, Republicans or in Democrats, they will look into, um, issues through their scripture, right? So, um, whether it's abortion, right, you have, uh, Christians looking, um, um, at their books and Muslims, uh, looking at their books, looking at these issues through their scripture, right? And what their pastor says or what their imam or rabbi says. And then furthermore, um, like now you have uh, churches changing their position on same-sex marriage, right? So um, unless the church can align their values with what the state says or vice versa, I think that that tension right there is where we can find our answer in terms of the metric. I don't know. I'm not sure if that, that's, that's a very direct way of answering the question, but I, I, I so maybe yeah. okay. Um, maybe like social participation. I mean, I think that's what they put forward is like social participation is where they kind of threw religion. If they had to reference it, I would say in this book, yes, like they see it more as like church attendance or like social club attendance, right? Or you're you're part of like the Free Elk Society or something random like that. <laughs> so yeah so, so that's what i mean okay we i think we already got to the heart of it in some sense like i kind of was gonna try to wait but if you let me go for like a little rant here um i think basically what happened is yes there were principles <clears throat> that the nation was founded on and maybe all people didn't agree with those principles or maybe people's perceptions of them have changed from now but i think in order to have a people like in order to have a nation you need some sort of unifying thing and this thing typically becomes religious even if it's not tied to a religion like the mythologies of the founding fathers the different um like buildings we put in dc the stories we tell about george washington about abraham lincoln things like this this becomes like almost a national religion. And so I think what we've seen in the last several, I mean, it's been happening for a long time, but basically we've started to deconstruct um, these myths because per, like perhaps these people did need to be re-examined, right? Because of different legacy, like legacies of slavery, legacies of like, you could name any different thing, like any different reason why we need to deconstruct it. But now what we're left with is just like this unraveled mythology. Like we've attacked all of our institutions and basically taken all the power away from them by deconstructing them. So now, I mean, and, and probably this was necessary to progress certain forms of um, equality for different peoples and like different rights and all of this. So now I think we need to eat, we need to try to put it all back together, I guess. So having unraveled all the mythology, 
and taking advances um, in terms of equality for different individuals, different peoples. Now we kind of need to weave all that back together into a national mythology. And so I think a lot of the head budding right now is from the pain of unraveling that and from the pain of what is going to be what is going to tie us together as a people moving forward? Like, what is this nation even? And it's always kind of been just, it's always been a, for lack of a better terms, a melting pot. But I think like we've seen that just revved up to a much faster pace, much faster speed and like higher stakes. Well, I, I, I really like your point about like, the whole idea about mythologies, right? And I, I think it is a, I did, it's, it's, it's good. Like you said, it's kind of a double-edged sword. It's good that we are re-examining those individuals, but it's also problematic that you're now attacking a lot of the institutions that allow for this society to function. Um, and I, I, I think, I think, or I, it's, it comes down to forgiveness, right? What are we as a society willing to forgive about not just founding fathers, but any figure in our history, right? And it's like, you know, it, it's it's a it's a good it's a good quote from the Bible. Like whoever, um, whoever uh, you, you you probably know is better than me, but like whoever did not sin like, cast the first stone. Like, yeah, he without blame. He without blame, yeah, right? Cast the first stone. Yeah. So, like, who in our history, right? Are we going to look at and say they're just like this? messianic figure who had it all figured out and i think the founding fathers were to a certain extent self-aware of that right and i think their whole mm -hmm. issue was that they were moving away from authority because they saw what authority does and how it um how it can be hypocritical um and they try to rectify that in their society so it's a noble thing like the steps that they've taken and and if we're going to follow into their footsteps we should also have that humility um, and also have the, the capacity to forgive um, when we can where people um, where people erred, right? Or people made mistakes. Um, then obviously making the decision as a people and saying, how are we going to move forward and come back to what's right and what's good and what's, what's wholesome? Um, yeah, I think that's a very like wise way of putting that, but... I don't know if that is going to relate to everyone. You know what I mean? Like, it won't. It definitely won't. I mean, there's a lot of people that are, yeah. I mean, that are very angry and rightfully so, but if like they don't have anything to channel it through. <laughs> right. And I think that's the whole point right now with, with the book is that when you have so many people who are disenfranchised and don't have a way to channel that energy. Um, back into the institutions and, and the government, um, and uh, want to work through want to work through the problems, then that that becomes um, increasingly difficult to arrive at a point of forgiveness and humility and all these, like you said, <laughs> very soft and wise things to say, but practically very difficult yeah. to achieve. Where are we at in the? Sorry, where are we at in the I think line? We're, okay, we're just here. We're just so here, yeah. I don't know. I was gonna make a point too of like how they talk about how the United States is not really 
democracy. It's more of a republic and it's more of a, well, it's sort of a mix between a republic and a democracy. Mm-hmm. And I think that the way that it, the United States is structured, I mean, it's pretty impressive that it has, it has lasted as cohesively as long as it has. Like this mixed government actually for all of its inefficiencies and like frustrations, it has worked pretty well. I, I, I would definitely agree. And I, I think the progress of democracy, right. Or, or the, or the fruits of it has to be the reminder that we tell ourselves and others that this is why we should hold on to it. Right. Um, we've, we've made it this far. We can't just stop. And, um, that, that, that has to be, I guess, for the, for the people who feel disenfranchised, the people who feel marginalized, that, um, that there, there has been goods, there, there has been good things about um, democracy, the United States, the West, and it's, it, it can't just be this wholesale, just like, give up, right? And, yeah. And, and, and I think- So that's like the, yeah. That's like the white pill argument. What's the, what's the white pill <laughs> argument? what we've just like laid out basically that's really? a white pill argument really assuming really? yeah <laughs> i think so <laughs> but i think i mean that's like what i'm gonna take but yeah i think you could i don't know i think we'll get into it when we start talking about sort of like media and corporations the awful word corporations like but so I see, I see this book is like the primary, at least this first chapter. So the next like head headlines are like the decline of equal citizenship, loss of confidence, non-participation, deprivation. So it seems like they're saying like, man, if we can just get more people to participate in like voting and voicing their opinions, that that's going to make the problems go away. Is that how you feel or am I kind of short selling it there. Yeah, I I would disagree with that. I I don't I know everything eventually comes down to voting, but um or that's what they say at least. And um I, I think democracy is, is far more broader and the effectiveness of democracy is far more reaching than just talking about voting. I think your ability to have nonprofits, for profits organizations, events, holidays, um, even culture, culture, like whether it's music, art, literature, um, all these things intertwine into our democracy. So, I mean, I'll, I'll speak for myself, right? So like I'm, I'm North African origin, Muslim. Uh, most people in my community aren't super fired up about voting or becoming politically involved, like running for office. Uh, um, um, you know, even showing up to Democrat meetings or Republican meetings, if, if they're at those. Um, and part of the reason is because, because what they, the democracy that they've experienced in their origin country has been for the most part autocratic and expressing your opinions off, often faced with torture, violence, you know, all sorts of harassment. Um, so when they come here to an actual democracy, right, they're like, oh, I'm just here to work my job. Um, and for me, what really turned my switch is actually having the opportunity to start a Muslim fraternity on my campus at the University of Toledo. 
and actually getting a group of guys who are also some from North Africa, some from Middle Eastern, you know, but generally places where democracy isn't like quote unquote thriving. When they were given a space where we can actually do exactly what that that word means, the the agonistic, you know, become bad and polemical, but not antagonistic. Um, mm-hmm. I think you actually had a group of guys for the first time understand what democracy it really is, right? But can you say that all of us voted? Probably not. Did we all watch, you know, the the Trump, you know, the Trump election go down? Absolutely, and it was it was hella fun um, watching that. Um, and and we actually had guys in the fraternity who so, some were Republicans, some were Democrats. So it was it was very interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah. If, if if you didn't if you didn't create that institution, if the University of Toledo in Greek life um, didn't encourage and welcome that kind of d- democratic participation. Um, this segment of society would never have a taste of what democracy actually is. Um, so I think maybe voting is maybe for these people, the people who wrote the book, the end game, right? But there's a lot of steps that have, need to happen before that in order you can get someone to the polls. Some people, they get Yeah, and that's kind of, know. yes, that's kind of my point is that there's a lot more to it than voting. <laughs> yes. Um, okay, so... We hit that opacity. Check. Yeah, I think. No, I don't mean to just like check things yeah. off. I'm just saying like. Yeah. I think a lot of like this first chapter, I had to summarize it was just. Yeah, vote. Un- underrepresented people aren't voting in high enough numbers. I'm very curious, though, because what, I mean, like, like I said before, like, yeah, we're, we're talking about minorities. We're talking about youth. Right, that's great and all, but coming back to this idea of a silent majority, I don't know the statistics, right? But if if there's a large portion of Americans who do have a history of participating in democracies, do have all the institutions which promote democracy, yet they are not coming to the polls or don't feel like their voices are heard um, after voting, after participating in all these institutions, um, then that that's also a problem, right? Because the, I mean, like, what percentage of America are going to be Arab Americans, right? I mean, right. How many thousand of you know? Yeah. So, so if I could say yeah. the thing with voting in the U.S. especially, but in general, and kind of where I maybe differ from. I still vote, but I am still hesitant on how much a vote really matters. So I think one of the biggest issues is that you don't really get to pick like who's going to be on your ballot or what issue in a, in a roundabout way you do. I mean, maybe if you participate in a primary or something, but there's so many forces outside of you that are basically controlling what your options even are when you go sit in front of a ballot. Like, yes, how, how many of these people, I mean, these people are, they have to make money. So they have to go and get donations. They have to have different agendas from the people that they're taking money from. They have to be recognized through media advertisement. Like, they need all this just to get to your ticket and then you get to your ticket. I mean, say it's a state election and you get 
two or three people. If anybody even runs against an incumbent or a presidential election, you get to vote, you get to choose from two people. I mean, in the primary, maybe you have five, but how different are all of their views really? And then how different are they going to be in practice? Like in order to say that voting is going to change any, anything, you really have to believe that like the president actually has significant power beyond being sort of like the spokesperson or figurehead of the country. Like he actually has power to completely change policy. And to some extent he does. There are executive orders, like if his um, party wins Senate house, like, okay, perhaps they pass a few bills, but I just, I don't know how much like, how much power any elected official on their own really has to affect change. I have two responses. Not, not, I wouldn't say necessarily responses, but comments about that specific point. Yeah. The first one being is that if you're a voter and you're an educated voter, you, you understand that when you're voting, you are doing all these other activities outside of voting. So voting is just a small moment of time in order which you go in and stamp, I want this guy versus that guy, yada, yada, yada. But when you are making that vote, you understand that that is supposed to line up with hundreds or thousands of other activities that you're doing outside of that moment to align with your values, your beliefs, and your, um, your commitments, um, your, your alliances, and all these other things, right? So um it's 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 a complete package so that i guess that'd be my first comment about that so if you're making an impact you understand that your impact is coming from how how you're spending your money where you work uh where you go to church or or whatever um but the second thing i would say is that in order to have that high level of participation like some people aren't as motivated to get up in the morning just to like sign up for everything like like I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure all my classmates at OSU think I'm a crackhead because I'm like just everywhere, <laughs> right? Like, like it's yeah. what don't you do? And I mean, I, I love it, right? Um, I love being alive, but um, you know, having the financial resources, having the health, having the interest, having the education, um, it takes a lot to get to a person to that point where they can just understand that, yeah, when you vote. And the irony is I actually didn't vote this last election because I was in Columbus and I had to like, my, my things were in Toledo. I had to like do something in Columbus so I can vote. So shame on me for not voting, yeah. right? But it, it's, um, um, it, it is, I think, incredibly privileged to have all of those things and understand how all these things line up and how it all comes together. Um, can it be better? Can it ever be not that situation where only healthy, well-abled individuals who are educated? And I, I think that's actually one of their points in the, in the thing. I'm not sure if it's under that same exact section. Decline of, or yeah, a decline of equal citizenship is people who are yeah. richer, they're going to they're gonna vote more. People who are educated are going to vote more. People who are older and wiser and understand the necessity for voting are going to vote more. Um, people who are part of a community and, you know, um, feel certain issues stronger because they're part of the majority are more likely going to, to vote. Um, so I, I'm not sure if that there is something that we can do about that besides 
I, I mean, I guess they try to do it by having like equity, diversity, and inclusion workshops and, you know, try to get these things rolling. But um, I think it's also problematic though, right? I mean, I'm not sure if this is, we're going into a tangent at this point from the point about like voting, is, is voting really important? Um, yeah. But I, I will say that I, I sometimes think that there is, one, there's a tokenization of minorities, right? Where we're using minorities to say that, oh yeah, this is the more diverse thing just to pull on people's heartstrings to say like, yeah, yeah I don't want to be, I don't want to be called a racist, right? I don't, I don't want to be, you know, whatever. So if I think one party or one individual is less racist, then I'll vote for him. So I'm not marked as a racist when I go to work. Um, yeah. Also, the the asymmetrical strength that a minority can have over the majority is, I think it's, it's, I mean, if you're the majority, that's incredibly uncomfortable, right? Where you are constantly demonized, right? When you think that there is a minority that is working against your interests um, and working against, you know, the rest of everybody. And then if you're, if you're to say that you, you come across as a big, bad bully, right? Um, it's very interesting. So like, you know, my family's from Egypt, so the, the situation's flopped, right? So here I'm a minority, right? You know, Muslim Arab, like I constitute maybe less than 1% or 2% of the society, right? Here in the United States. But when I go to Egypt, I'm part of the majority. I have, you know, uh, a social privilege um, over the 10% uh, Christian minority in Egypt, right? Um, so I understand, you know, the privileges of being a minority and, and, uh, being a part of the majority and the dynamics at play in, in either one. Um, and so I, I think there has to be, there has to be a way to be fair, you know, to, to obviously the majority, the, the needs and wants of the majority and the minority in order for them to work together and kind of continue to push through, through, um, you know, push to the democracy, make things better, make sure that everyone's meeting their needs and um, we're all working together and most importantly, seeing each other as equals. Um, yeah. So. Yeah. So I wanted to ask you what your opinion of his, his kind of like use of like Muslims, like he talked about them a lot in his opening chapter, I felt. it's So I thought yeah. there was a weird there was this strange setup thing where he was using like multiple examples of Muslim people and different. So he like contrasted them in the U S like he talked about basically like xenophobia coming from the right against Muslims. And then he talked about it in Europe, I felt. And he said that there was xenophobia coming from right wing groups, but that were primarily LGBTQ concerns. And then he turned to Turkey and talked about Orban and sort of condemned like a sort of uh, Islamic right wing uh, government or what he called like basically like a limited democracy. So it was, it was pretty interesting, like all three examples. Well, but. It's, it's crazy. You remember all three examples like that. I don't think I, I was able to absorb all of that. Um, I want to quote Peter Thiel and it, it's actually like a minute 43 uh, YouTube video, but I have, I'm reading the clip off of uh, Twitter where Peter T Thiel, he says, there are three plausible futures for Western Europe. He says Islamic, Islamic Sharia, totalitarian AI like China or hyper environmentalism. I, I would argue that 
Muslims living in the West, our loyalty is constantly in question, right? And I think it's for good reason. I, I don't think it's 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 completely uh, um, arbitrary or just you know just the typical tropes of you know I don't know like crusader rhetoric of like you know these uh, these thieves or whatever, right? Um, uh, there there is. I mean, there's obviously like there's just like that blind fear, like the blind Islamophobia of just like, oh, burqas, ah, that's scary, right? Like, four wives, cutting off hands, like there's that kind of like, I I I just think it's like it's it's bigoted fear, but there's also, um, I think people in the elite intelligentsia that understand that um, our understanding of unif- universalism, right? Um, as a democracy, like we 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 center our democracy around universalist principles, is also being ch- um, challenged. Um, I would argue by uh, literalists or people who are like from uh, certain strands of of Islam that are also promoting, and maybe you can even argue some even some majority strands that are promoting kind of a universalist idea. Um, so, a lot, and I'll speak for myself. Growing up, one of the biggest questions that we had growing up as kids here in the U.S. is like is it possible that we could be American and Muslim? Because as a Muslim, you have a loyalty to the broader faith, right? In terms of you're saying that um, I, and, and there's like, you know, traditions and there's like verses and stuff like that that emphasize this point that you have a responsibility to your fellow Muslim, right? So um, that is often interpreted as your loyalty is, is not to America. You don't care about America. And obviously events like 9-11 exacerbate that. You're not, you're not, you're not, you're not a true American. You can't be a true American and be Muslim because you're obviously loyal to other, other Muslims, right? United right. States is at war in Iraq. United States is a war in Afghanistan. And obviously both, I mean, with the exception of the Taliban, Iraq wasn't a, a religious, you know, country. It, it was a secular. That was very secular, right? Right. Until <laughs> exactly. we went in there. <laughs> so, um, and you you uh um so obviously you're, you're going to question all these um all these people who are not just coming with their faith and, and there's something inter- interesting that i think about islam as a faith right and i don't, I, I wouldn't say maybe it's just exclusive to islam i mean when you see a buddhist person um or you know you have someone who's buddhist who's like from a buddhist country they're not just bringing their buddhism they're bringing their boot like they're bringing their their culture as well their their cultural foods their cultural clothes so when all those things are kind of wrapped up, right, and you're coming now into your society, and actually I would have maybe argued that is kind of exclusive to Islam because some of the things that are taught um, in Islam are actually wrapped into Arab culture, right? So when Islam spread, it didn't just export certain faith ideas. It exported a culture as well. So you have people, and you can just see it by the architecture, just um, uh I think his name is Peter Morgan was the guy's book that um, I just read or, or I took his course with Oxford, but he talks about this like cultural phenomenon where the architecture across the Middle East is uh, it's different, but there's still a resemblance that it's all coming from the same fountain or faucet. Um, so I, I think that there, there is a concern there, whether someone is, is, is a citizen um, or he's something else, right? Is he working against the state? Now, I argue that there is, you know, like, obviously, I'm 
you know, I'm, I, I put my citizenship and my American, Americanness uh, at the forefront of my identity. I wouldn't say it's always like first, like, I don't think I'm, I think what's his name? Who is a uh, Pence? I think Pence, he has like, an interesting quote where he says like, I'm a Christian first, then I'm a Republican second, or he kind of has this, like chain of logic. But I think he starts off by yeah. saying he's, he's Christian. Um, I, I don't think I have that, that same line of thinking on, on all of my identities, but I think it is necessary for someone to whatever place that they live in. Like if I was in Russia, right, I can't just say, oh, I'm a Muslim. I don't care about what happens in Russia. No, I have to also care about other Russians. I have to care about people in my community, my neighbor, right, whether he's a Jew, Christian, or, or whatever, um, and know that there is a, there is a moral responsibilities towards other humans, Right? It's like I can't just say, like, well, that, that person is another faith. I'm just going to let him starve on the side of the road. Or, you know, there's an issue with transportation. And, and I, love, I love my major and I love my, my education because when I, when I talk about, you know, roads, if I talk about public parks, it's like this is for everybody, right? I'm not just trying to serve one segment of my community. I'm trying to serve everybody. Um, and I think that there, there is some people within the Muslim community who are, are very confused about their loyalties um, uh, because, you know, there's wars, there's a history, there's a history there. Um, and I also don't blame also people who are right, far right, or they can even be left, um, where they have a very antagonistic or, um, uh, view towards Islam or, you know, Europeans. Um, but I think it's through cooperation. I think it's through collaboration that you begin to learn and unlearn, um, certain ideas and you're able to see that no it is possible for someone who's muslim to be a, a full-on citizen um and and be a great ally so yeah well said yeah <laughs> i mean push back i mean I, um, I i i think um no i have nothing to push right. back against yeah. i just thought i thought the way he laid it out was quite interesting sort of like he was kind of just laying it out as examples, but you could tell he definitely was like shading different sides of the argument. So it was just interesting how one group of people, I guess, could in his mind sort of be on the wrong side or being sort of oppressive of another group of people and how in a different location, he thinks that the script is flipped. I'm not sure if I have a comment on that. I, I think I will say, though, you know, he, he mentioned Europe, he mentioned Turkey. I would say in the U.S., we do a really, it, it's far better. Like, I know in France, like, the, the stories that I hear from, you know, about French Muslims or uh, uh, Muslims in, in, in Europe, it's, it's, it's a little rough. Um, and they don't do a great job of integrating um, immigrants. But here in the U.S., like, mm -hmm. there's always, always room for improvement. But, you know, living in Slovenia, here in Toledo, um, I had the opportunity to be part of the varsity team, play soccer, play, you know, um, you know, come, come through the K through 12, um, about to go have a reunion with some of my soccer buddies. We played club soccer for like five or six years together, um, you know, to have like genuine relationships with people in the community. Um, I'm saying like, I'm, I'm quite integrated, right? But yeah. Maybe in other parts of the world, it's 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 a little bit harder uh, for somebody, and maybe I have my own privileges and I have my own own advantages that maybe not all Muslim Americans feel that way. But I would say, generally speaking, like the left has been accommodating and welcoming um, to 
and it's not just Muslims. I mean, like, I think he briefly mentioned Sikhs and Hindus on certain things as well. Um, but they're also included into the democracy, and they're also given the opportunity to participate and engage and um, contribute. Um, so yeah, I think that's sort of yeah. key, right? Like just at a community level, how do we interact? I think there's sort of a weird dissonance between your interactions with other people say, and then like your projection of your politics onto like a national level onto like this block, like this amorphous blob of like something that you call X or Y, but like when you interact with it in person, Mm -hmm. you have a, a dissonance between like how you would conceptually maybe interact with it in like politics versus how you interact with the person. Right. Yeah. No, I I agree a hundred percent. Even if we were to scale down that idea to like a, like another issue or, or, um, or maybe a more tangible issue for more, um, for, for, for most people, like anyone can kind of spit their opinion about like the environment or spit their opinion about like, Oh, we need more taxes or we need less taxes or higher taxes, lower taxes. Right. They can just say their opinion. They can just vote and, you know, just, but if you were to actually have a one-on-one conversation and be like, do you actually understand the law? You actually know what's that really doing in the economy? Like, and you try to have like a practical conversation with a person about that. They might not actually really know, you know, the ins and outs of details. Just someone told them that taxes are bad. So they just, you know, they vote a certain right. way. Yeah. Well, that, okay. So let's get to opacity. Like <laughs> these, all these issues are so complex that, how can you vote on them? Like you have no idea what somebody that you vote for is going to do. They don't probably even understand the issues. Like some of these things that are getting so complex. And then you take all of that and then throw media at it, throw social media at it. And it's like, how do you even know what you're doing? (laughs) Um, I, I'm not sure if I, if I, I have a feeling I've been saying this quote way too many times, if either uh, uh, on this, on this podcast show or in another medium where we had a conversation, but I love quoting this quote from uh, Tenet. Uh, So Tenet is a movie by Christopher Nolan. And in the movie, the protagonist, and he's literally called the protagonist. He doesn't have another name. He's just called the protagonist in the movie, which is like, I don't know. It's pretty dope. Uh, But the protagonist whenever he comes across a person um, that he, he thinks he's an antagonist, but he's vetting them, he says, we live in a twilight world, right? And if the person is an ally, then he will say, no friends at dusk. And if he's not an ally, he won't respond to it, and he eventually gets shot, right? But um, apparently this was actually a, a strategy that the CIA would use to know, like, friend from foe, like, while they're working out in the field. Right. And it was just a code word um, that they would use. And it's, it's very interesting if you kind of like break down the language of like that phrase, no friends at dusk, you know, um, uh, we live in a twilight world. Um, but it's it, pretty much the meaning behind it is, is that it's, it's very hard to know who is your ally at the end of the day. Right. Um, and I, I think that's a very important principle to live by. That you can be making, you know, friends on Facebook, on social media, or even at school, right? Um, but I, I think as 
individuals, right? And we live in an individual society that you shouldn't ever let your guard down, right? And that's, that doesn't mean you don't have any trust with anybody, um, but you you have to realize that if you if you expose your guard, someone can um, someone can take advantage of that vulnerability of yours. Um, and I think that's healthy. I don't think that's a bad thing. I mean, it's like teaching you know teaching boys and girls self defense, right? Um, why would you want anyone to be put into a situation where they can be harmed? Right. Um, obviously, like legally harmed, financially harmed, you know, physically harmed. Um, and I think that allows for people to have um, people to see the repercussions of, of doing something bad. Right. Um, to, 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 to bring it back to obviously to social media and, and, and our earlier point, um, having so many different difference, differences of opinions. Um, and having to filter, um, you know, information, whether it's, it's good information or bad information. Um, I think it's just people doing their due diligence at the end of the day. Um, and having some sort of paradigm, I guess, in terms of measuring someone's, uh, um, authority and authentic authenticity. Um, like for example, I mean, we have like I'm trying to think of a trying to think of maybe a, a more relatable example for for people to to recognize. Like if if I put on a business suit, I think yeah, this is probably a good example. If I put on a business suit, right, and I showed a YouTube video, right, people can just be easily duped in thinking, well, you know, he's wearing a suit, so that that means he's he's obviously authoritative on the issue. I have to believe this guy, right? But if I wear like baggy sweatpants and, and shorts and whatever, right, t-shirt, then I'm no longer considered authentic um, on a subject or whatever. Um, so I, I think not to say that, you know, being well-dressed is a bad thing, but also at the same rate that people can disguise something that is true as false and someone can disguise something as false as true. Um, yeah, so I think where we're at is a, a place where it's very difficult to distinguish truth or to believe in much of anything. So much like where we talked about faith and institutions disappearing, I think this comes into play here. Mm. We don't have faith in the government really to tell us the truth. We don't have faith in the media to tell us the truth. So what do you vote on? If, if you don't believe the information that you're getting in a democracy, information is key that's how you make decisions and you need you need to have clarity on the information it can't be obstructed from view really so i think that's what makes it very difficult to vote or to to say what your vote is doing i i think it comes I'm not trying to be funny. Like this isn't this, this isn't meant to be a joke, but it's 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 kind of like having a blockchain at the end of the day, right? Like there there is there's a concern that you know uh, um, money can be laundered, uh, people can be printing printing dollar bills. Um, you you want to have a source of where that money comes, where did it transact from? Um, you know you can better surveil. Uh, money um 
but that's kind of how our information should be vetted as well, right? Like humans, we've been playing this long game of telephone that spans centuries, right? Our lang English language has evolved over the decades, but like over the centuries, I mean, we have all read Shakespeare, like Shakespeare sounds nothing like how we talk in English today. Um, and, and, and I think that's kind of how we're, we're we can uh, determine truth is by having, and that's the whole point of a work cited, right? If you're putting together a scientific paper, yeah. you have to cite other people. You didn't just come up with this information yourself, right? Um, so, but how do we vet the sources? Is like I think we're at that level of confusion. I mean, yeah. to go with your blockchain um, analogy. So basically, the idea of like DeFi, blockchain, whatever, mm -hmm. is to build trust in an anonymous somebody you don't know, somebody right. that you don't, you haven't actually had the time to build trust with. So I think like democracy, you could say a lot of the original knocks on democracy are like, this is not going to work once you go over like 10,000 people or 100,000 people or something, and you don't actually know the people that you're voting on or something. Like, there's just greater greater chance to be taken advantage of because people can obscure their actual motives or actions from you. Mm. So I think that's one of the risks and where we're at right now. I mean, you could even say like, I know he, he took the opportunity to take a lot of shots at Fox news and probably rightfully so, but like you could probably take those shots at like any, yeah, any like, media. Yeah. yeah. Except Coyote Cast. <laughs> Except Coyote Cast, we keep it real. We keep it real. We don't, we don't take any money. <laughs> um, I, it's 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 a um, it's a valid point, man. Um, but I was even just saying the other day, yeah. take something like that's like foundational to your how you interpret America, right? Okay, and now so like I'm gonna say. A conspiracy theory right whatever you believe about this conspiracy theory just for an example okay jfk shooting how many americans the assassination of jfk how many americans what percentage fully believes the official narrative on that like i don't know i have no idea but say even like 30 percent don't believe it and that comes from like a congressional report or something like that so if 30 percent of americans don't even believe like official reports from Congress. Like, what do we have at the end of the day? How do you make truth out of anything that you're hearing? <laughs> I mean, I, I, I think I, the only, the only way I can find my way out of this conversation is saying that you're absolutely right, Clay. The, the, the way that we assert truth is, is by having a victor and having a loser at the end of the day. Right. Um, that if you don't have one person winning, right, winning over the other party or the other individual or the other group, um, it, you know, like what's the quote? Like the line, lines never, you know, write history. It's always like the, the hunter, right? Yeah. The victor writes history. The victor writes something history. Something like that. Yeah. So um, truth will be determined by whoever, whoever wins and whoever dominates. And, it's it's kind of I think you know, that's 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 a view that's an opposition of democracy, but I think that's happening. That's 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 playing out right now, right? I mean, and I think 
important to note though is i think the victor used to control the press or the narrative making machine right i mean maybe you had a few thousand like you had a small group of people that kept a different story alive like verbally for a while or right. something but right. now i think the technology that we have things can get so splintered like just like infinitely fragmented to the and then you become so desensitized by all of the different stories and interpretation of things. I think there's definitely a positive side of this coin, but like just to take the negative side of the coin, just for the sake of this conversation, like mm -hmm. we're almost, I mean, I don't want to say post-truth, post-modernism or something. I think that that trope has been like beat to death, but in some ways it is sort of true. Well, I think, I mean, who's, I mean, who's doing like the, who's doing God's work and like studying all these sub works, uh, sub communities and these like, you know, sub news, new, new, yeah. new podcasts and channels. But I, I think there is regardless still universal ideas of, of right and wrong that, um, that you can still find in, in, in the majority of, of people. Right. And I think that's where the place, you know, bring it back to democracy. I think that's where de democracy can find its opportunities that if, if you can remind someone, be like, w would you like to be respected as a individual or be respected as a, as a human being? And do you, do you believe that your speech and your voice matters? Um, I think you can find some consensus, right? It's, and, it, and it's not like this technology has been long enough, been around long enough to completely push these fringes so far apart that they can't be reconciled anymore um yeah i think there is time and i i, I well, yeah i think that um so if you fragment things like this i think this is where you can get a dangerous sort of populate populism basically because oh right now it's difficult to rationally convince somebody of your point or something so what you get is almost like just an energy like people are attracted to an energy it's almost like a spiritual movement it's like a rising up of people right you convince people now not through rationality or a logical argument you convince them through a movement or emotion i i mean i i know i know the if you're an audience and obviously we came into this like conversation talking wanting to talk about politics but i there's a part of me that also wants to kind of like drift a little bit about like es eschatology, which I think is means like end of the world kind of scenarios. Okay. Like <laughs> how, how the world will end. Um, and I, I think like you said, like this, the spiritual populist movement, it's like, you know, in many traditions, I, I think in all Abrahamic traditions, there's this idea that there's going to be a messianic figure that comes and, you know, unites humanity and makes things better and spreads uh, justice and peace um, and truth um, across the world. But there's also this parallel narrative that's supposed to play out where you have like an anti-messianic or anti-Christ figure that comes and also has like a populist movement that rushes behind them. Um, and... I think, like you said, it is dangerous, these, these movements where it's just like you have this person who's supposedly like, you know, supposed to recruit hundreds and thousands of people and this is the guy, right? Um, and that's, you know, that can also lead to a lot of destruction. Um, 
And I think people are, are gravitating, that people want to believe in that person. I think it's just innate to who we are. We want that person. We, we want messianic figures in our, in our world. And I don't know. It comes back to your question once again. How do you know if it's, if it's, if it's the real stuff or it's, or it's fake? Um, what do you use to, to, to discern, um, to discern that? I don't know. Yeah, I mean it, that's a good point. It's a good. I mean, <laughs> I never, I never once thought we would end up at the apocalypse <laughs> in this discussion. <laughs> in this discussion, <laughs> but is no, like a, I think you have. Is there like a like a coyote noise to like signal that we tickled the the toes of the of the coyote? I mean, I feel, yeah, we should hit that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think it's like. At some point, like, yeah, it, religion gets brought up in almost every podcast once we go over a certain amount of time. Yeah, so, yeah, it's a threshold. It is, it's quite interesting. Um, yeah, I'll withhold my comments on <laughs> end yeah. times for now. <laughs> but no, that's a very interesting point. <laughs> um, where, what do we want to talk about still? I feel like we've... We've jumped like so far all over the place. Is there anything specific? It looks like you have good notes under, yeah, either polarization or democracy is a project, not a condition. Um, yeah, so that, so the democracy is a project, not a condition. That's kind of how he starts off chapter two. So that wasn't, that was like mm-hmm. right, you know, going to contradictions and double movements. I think polarization we've kind of hit on. Like we've already talked yeah. about right and left and um how some people delegitimize and excommunicate people from the democracy and say you know like i remember hearing people say like oh we got to hang ilhan omar right um because she's she's working against her democracy and whatnot um chapter two though contradictions and double movements i think this is a good topic um i mean it's a good chapter overall where it says like yes as a country we can say Racism is bad, right? Enslavement is bad. We're going to stop that. Yet, racism existed after after slavery and still exists till this day. Um, and I think that's the whole point, right? That in order for the democracy to exist, I think with or without having a U.S. government, I think ultimately at the end of the day, like imagine like there always being a group of people who say slavery is bad. Or I don't believe in slavery, right? And they are still creating democratic spaces where people can join and participate and be part of part of the group, right? That even if the United States never made the decision to um, ban slavery, you very well could still have had democratic-minded individuals who are against slavery who would survive and find a way to survive um, till today. So. I think those ideals don't die, right? But I still find it very strange, though. And I, 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 I mean, I never met someone who had democratic ideals who saw slavery as a good thing. Right. You know, like, we weren't living in the 18th century. Like, we're talking about this thing, like, oh, yeah, we overcame this, and we overcame other stuff, and we're going to overcome whatever comes our way. Because I'm an American, not an American, right? 
but like to actually live in that time where you're across the table with someone who's heavily invested in democracy just as much as you are but disagrees with you and sees that slavery is actually in the best interest of our of our democracy and it's the best of, of not just our democracy but broadly speaking democracies yeah it's it's one of those things that I don't even know how a modern person can it's difficult in my opinion for a modern person to even have like a reference to what slavery like truly means or meant um it's one of those things that's like it's so obviously wrong at this point in time that you're like how was that ever even a thing that yeah <laughs> well i think well here's here's something for us to like i don't know toss around with right most pre-modern civilizations had slavery right it was a fact mm-hmm. right i think we are living in a time in in history i mean like in the point that we're living from as midwestern americans right where it's like unfathomable un- unfathomable that slavery could ever have been a thing um but i think for majority of human history and i think it's still in many parts of the world slavery still exists right mm-hmm. um and I, I think they're, um, and when we hear slavery, we just automatically, our, our response and our impulse is that it's bad, right? Um, now, that might sound like I'm leading up to the point that saying that slavery is, is somehow good in some ways. That, that's not what all, at all what I'm saying. Being a free person is definitely advantageous and better. Um, and um, encouraging the, the liberation of people, the encouraging the the freedom of people is definitely um, one of the goals of democracy and one of the goals I think of any um, healthy society. But in, in, in some instances, um, slavery was the only, uh, only possible uh, uh, way that that person could exist in the civilization or live in the society. Right. Um, I think I, you know, I don't want to like misquote history. If that's, if, if that's even possible. Um, but if you're a prisoner of war, right um of a society right and in order for you to exist in that society because you have uh, a clear antagonistic attitude towards that society and civilization the only way that you could possibly continue to live and continue on is by you know is by being a slave right or being a pow which is pretty much being a slave as well right um so um I think we, I think the American history and the, the American story is different, and I don't think it can be superimposed in other parts of the world. Um, but I mean, there is, I think, room for conversation to say, like, is are there points where slavery is the only solution for certain contexts and situations that there isn't actually another alternative um, for that individual um, to still preserve their life without you know, removing their freedom or putting them into bondage. You know, I'm sure there's literature out there. I'm not the person to speak about it or represent the literature. But um, I, I do think our our context and understanding of slavery is unique in history and in the world. Um, we have this, I think it's, it's natural for Americans. We have this natural tendency to, you know, spread our ideals and export it to other parts of the world because we believe so strongly about them, which is a, it's, it's a charming thing, but um, it, it def- 
definitely doesn't make sense in other parts of the world um, where the culture, the norms, um, which we, we may never get to a point where we fully understand or um, can, can appreciate, uh, maybe try to find a more practical example um, that isn't as sensitive. I mean, obviously slavery is, is an incredibly sensitive issue. And um, I maybe just made myself canceled to hundreds of thousands of people. Who didn't it. <laughs> but I mean, like, it promotes slavery. Yeah, it promotes slavery. And there I am. Slavery as yeah. a last resort. <laughs> no. My Twitter's gone. That's... My, my face, everything's gone. <laughs> yeah. I've never heard that argument per se. It's interesting. Well, I, I guess I'm, try, I'm trying to find like a better, like a more tangible, less sensitive issue for us to hold on. To. Well, I think yeah. that I think there's like several things in history that are like that, where it was so ingrained in culture for so long until it wasn't, and then we're like, how how did this even occur? Mm-hmm. But you're right; it still occurs. So yeah, it's it, that, that's exactly my point. As as much as we might say that, oh, this is horrible; it could never happen right it continues to happen right and it's it's still a thing right um like some people are like shocked like when russia invaded ukraine right they're like how could this happen right and it's like this has been happening for centuries this is the story of humanity right like we we want to say that we've we've done away with murder we've done away with sin we've done away with with just about everything that's wrong with humanity that we've solved the problem of evil, right? But humans are humans, and they'll continue to be humans. And you know, there's all we have a limited capacity. As you know, I like to think of myself as a good guy, and as you know, as you as a good guy, we have a limited capacity in terms of how much we can actually change with our words, our hands, and our actions. Um, that, uh, yeah, I mean. I think there's only truly a way to manage these problems, right? And and I think it was, I think this was in the introduction that you read in our last episode, that when you look at the fringes of societies versus addressing them with oppression, we have to address them with justice. So is there circumstances where the death penalty or imprisonment or other, you know, other consequences, it's a just thing to do? Right. And I think there are instances where slavery was the just thing to do, where you could have killed someone's you know, entire family because you deemed them as a threat or you say, look, there isn't that trust between me and you. Slavery is um, the, 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 the option for you. Um, and obviously, I think every circumstance can be held differently. Once again, I feel like I just got. Yeah, you might be right. I think that. Um... <laughs> Like chattel slavery, like the transatlantic slave trade and like what occurred in the Americas is typically what we think of as now all forms of slavery are bad. But like that one was particularly bad and has particularly left like a large impact right on us as Americans. So. Yeah. Yeah. And that one was removed from like, say a time of war or something where you raid a neighboring tribe and you take like women and children as slaves or something. Obviously I think both are wrong, but yeah, I think, I guess the pain point of American slavery and the, the it's recency in history, I think is particularly 
right an issue in the United States. Right, yeah. right, and and I think it's I I think it's just uh, as Americans when when we look at other societies, like for example, it's like we 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 want to pass judgment on how other societies dress, right? The dress code of, of certain societies, right? And I, I don't think America is as judgmental as, for example, Europe. But like, if if a woman chooses to cover, right, versus a woman who chooses to, who chooses not to cover right um you 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 have to have the cultural capacity to to say like that's one way of living that's another way of living right and that choice yeah has no bearing on on you i mean and i, I don't th- i think there are instances though where morally you can deem something wrong enough that you need to Step basically in. take action against it and i think right that is for all of its good and all of its ills a lot of times the west has deemed things immoral mm-hmm. this has caused problems too but maybe in the case of slavery i would i would say we're probably on the right side of that where yeah we say at this point like this institution this action is so bad that we do need to condemn this universally and take action against it did you um did you see the interview um with the iranian reporter in the u.s uh, soccer captain during the world cup i didn't know. I, I i recommend you know for you, but also the audience to, to go back and watch it. Cause I thought the U S captain, I, I believe he was a U.S. he was a, the captain of the team. He, he was African American. He, he made a very, very good response. Right. So, you know, this Iranian guy is trying to, you know, uh, hit like some soft points, um, and stuff. And he was like, do you feel like you pre- pretty much like, do you feel good? The fact that you're representing a, a country that, you know, promotes, you know, that promoted slavery and has this history and blah, 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 blah. Right. And he, and he very craftily, you know, came back and said, um, you know, I come from a mixed family, right? Or he was either adopted or, you know, he, he was raised in a mixed family. Um, and, you know, he brought up all the good things that, you know, he was privileged with um, as an American and all the points of um, interracial diversity um, that we have in America. Um, and he obviously, and he said, like, we're constantly working on these things. We're, we're improving ourselves. We're not perfect. We're not this, we're not that. But like, you know, he didn't like, or just turn on his country and be like, yeah, you're right. Like this jersey that I'm wearing, this country that I'm from, it's, it's all bad, right? And I thought it was really yeah. sensitive that Iranian reporter to say that, like during during the time of the World Cup. Um, so yeah, yeah, I think um, the West and America, especially when viewed from the outside, I mean, sometimes I think that there's a lot of um, say like the West has had or has a lot of hubris. There's a lot of like contradictions in the ideals that we have put forward and things like that. And I think right now we're at this time where we're becoming so like self-reflective and introspective, which is good. Hopefully we can address some of these contradictions and like Mm -hmm. not act just out of pride. But I think at some point there was, there were benefits reaped like from acting on our ideals. And hopefully after reflection we will gain like confidence to act on some of these things again it's difficult it's i mean yeah i i think for anyone to come out and say like oh it's not oh it's like yeah it's the right thing to do of course i'm gonna do the right thing right um i think that person doesn't really know i i think that person has to be speaking ignorantly because um doing the right thing is always it's always a difficult act because um you're you're for someone who's especially in a, in a position to lose something, I think that's where 
that that's where the courage is is needed it's not needed with people where it's like well i have nothing to lose right or i'm i'm benefiting from this like no it's from the people who who actually i guess have have something to lose um yeah yeah so let's hit let's skip ahead to people public and public good that was your section i, I think this I, I left that to you okay yeah <laughs> let's see if i remember what i read <laughs> okay i mean so no i'll just say in general like how do we build a shared identity how do we come to an ideal of a public good that can be shared by like a large majority of people and rallied behind. I think it's a simple idea. I think it, it just comes back to the concept or the notion that um, all men are created equal, right? Um, and by men, obviously we mean women as well, um, but we, we mean all beings, right? Um, all human beings are um, equal in the sense that they're all worthy of respect, dignity, um, um, even for someone who's a supervillain, right? I mean, I love Batman, right? Like, even the way that he treats his enemies isn't like, well, actually, no, there was that one scene in, in The Dark Knight where he really messes up the Joker in the <laughs> interview room. But still, there's like an understanding, like, there, there are boundaries um, to a human being, um, and you can't, you can't cross those boundary, boundaries. Um, I think that's our, that should be our, our starting point, um, for knowing our public. So why does it feel though? Like, it feels like there's so many different, um, options put forth of what is the best to do, or like, we all can't agree on how to actually reach that point. And then we get so incensed by disagreeing on, on these things. Is it, is it just like is this the reality? Like, do we actually, can we actually not get along? Or like, do you think for some reason we're buying into this narrative by the news we consume or something telling us that we're constantly in conflict or. I think there's definitely like some satanic whispers that are trying to uh, um, seduce us towards um, one disagreement, which is probably, probably say the lowest thing um but also like violence um uh, what's the word when you make someone like subhuman subhuman or you're you're trying to um say that that person is subhuman I think yeah. there's, a, there's a there's a right there's a technical term for that but um I don't, uh, the only thing i can think of is like othering yeah you know like other creating an other or like yeah um I, I i think there there is just kind of like that I'm not sure what to call it, maybe animalistic instinct where we, we, we do that. I mean, once again, not to always bring it back to COVID, but like, it was like crazy, man. Like we would see footage of people like fighting over toilet paper. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think, I think it was the secretary, secretary of treasure. Right. I was sitting in AAA and I was watching him speak. I, I'm not sure if it was live or not, but he was up there. <laughs> he was like toilet paper guys really right and he like you know it was just a really because he was speaking really really for me he's like you know i'm calling on everybody to everyone should call upon their better angels and you know a very positive uplifting message and he was just like 
Yeah. Toilet paper, really, guys. Um, so I I think it's um I think it's just calling each other back to our senses when we do find those moments where we want to resort to. Um, but then again, like a person could be in a, in a perfect mental state. Someone could be in a perfect, you know, frame of mind, but still feel very passionately that you're doing the wrong thing. You're doing things that are, aren't working against people's interest or, or you're doing things that's bad for the public. Um, I think we really have to weigh though at the end of the day, right? Like is like, are certain issues, are, are you going to really, you know, die for this, die for this cause? Is, is it really that important? Um, I think we also have to make a measurement of what's, what's really, really important at the end of the day, like what's really worth dying for. Um, yeah. Like, for example, like, I'm not like, I'm not pro LGBTQ, right? Like, I don't, you know, I, I, I don't swing that way, right? But like, at the end of the day, right? Um, I'm not like particularly threatened by that community, right? Um, I'm not like, you know, I have to vote Republican against them because, you know, this, they're, they're like, they're the scum of the earth. Like, you know, I don't, I don't have that attitude towards like the LGBTQ community. Um, yeah. But, you know, do, do I have a, you know, issue with, with, you know, things about like war, wars overseas, or um, do I have an issue with uh, police brutality, um, how other human beings are being treated? Um, yeah, that's, that, I think that's where, that's, that's how I, I view these policies and I view these issues. Um, mm-hmm. So, I mean, like, I, honestly, man, like, I, some of, like, it, that's the thing, it's like, unfortunately, politics has just been reduced to cultural wars, right? Where if, you know, I think they, they talk about this European uh, governor or politician running for office in Europe, and he was like, you know, he, he, uh, I think he was, he was saying like, he was saying Islamophobic stuff. So people thought he was on the far right, right? Because if, if you're yeah. far right, you're going to say things against Muslims. And the way he, he pushed back against that, he's like, oh, I'm gay. The man was eventually shot and killed. Yeah, this, this is what I was talking about at the beginning, sort of. That was one of the examples, yeah. Yeah. So, you know, like, why should it be about those things? Like, if you're a politician, your most important thing is, like, you're working at the political authority. You're not working in the civil society, right? Or you're not working at it. But this is how you get people to, I think this is how you get people to rally around you at this point. Yeah. Forget the infrastructure. Emotional, please. Right. And I, I think it's wrong. I mean, I think we're, we're putting our eggs in the wrong basket or, you know, I'm not sure what the right, you know, phrase. But this is, this is, this is what politics has become. Like this has been incentivized because right now, basically what you vote on is who is the best spokesperson? Like who is the best actor that will say the right things and like looks a certain way. And that's basically how you get a vote. Like we're not voting on, experts in some like subject matter to sit on a certain committee in congress like no. we have no idea what these people even do some of them are career politicians so what are their skills or matters of expertise other than speaking who knows you see what i'm saying yeah. so like that's how i think you um end up at like just making emotional i mean not i don't want to like 
I'm not deriding people that vote based on emotion. Like in some ways that can be reasonable too, but I'm saying this is how you end up with these talking points being basically things that are going to arouse people emotionally to actually go and vote for someone. And, and we can always throw the blame at the politicians and say like, Oh, the system sucks and become like apathetic towards democracy. But I think this emotional responses that we have to towards politicians and stuff like, Oh, he's, he's black. So I'm going to vote for him. Oh, he's white. I'm going to vote for him. Oh, she has her hair done a certain way. So I'm going to vote for her. Um, I think that's reflective of how we're thinking and how we're behaving on an individualist individual level and on a community level, right? If, if we were judging things based upon merit, right? Like if you, like, for example, you got into Harvard, not just because you're a minority, right? But because you actually have what it takes, right? Uh, to be a part of Harvard, right? Um, or, or you've, you've reached into the ballpark of being able to contribute to a Harvard culture. Um, if, if we were behaving that way on a, I think on, on a basic level where we, we treated people equal and it was, it was based on merit, um, you were actually brought into, like, I know like a lot of women, they just don't want to be like brought into a company just because, you know, oh, they're a woman and oh, you're just given this job because you're a woman. Like, no, they want to know that I'm just as skilled and I'm just as competitive as an applicant as anybody else, man or woman. Um, So maybe, okay, sorry to interrupt. So maybe democracy is a representation of our society at large. So not necessarily being that like we pick the best people to represent ourselves, but just that our representatives just end up being literally representative of the direction of our society of the education level of the um, cultural values of our society so maybe when we're saying generation of democracy we're actually i mean a step removed so we don't exactly cast the blame on ourselves but basically we're saying our culture has degenerated our culture has degenerated exactly um i think that's a good place to work honestly i I think we, we, we all, um, you know, with or without democracy, we can all work on our culture. Um, and, you know, I, I think we can still have democracies. Um, but, yeah. yeah, we do we do have to work on it. It's funny because, like, I have a friend, he's really into music, right? And he was telling me how like, the international billboards for, for music are no longer U.S. American singers, right? He's like, they're Spanish singers, like, you know. Spanish, the Spanish-speaking world is taking over the music billboards, so you know um, maybe something we can we can discuss about our music sometime and say like, well, how did we go from these set of musicians, right, who are massively popular in the United States but also internationally, where people are no longer appreciating our culture, no one's appreciating what we're what we're making and what we're doing. I don't know, something to think about too. You know what though? What we can still claim them as American because they're Puerto Rican. Oh, there so, you go. <laughs> that's our <laughs> that's back our past to say that America is still dominant on the charts. But yeah. no, I mean, I what I want to say is like, I don't want to be the person to say like, democracy is degenerate. Like, it sounds like a moralistic judgment, basically. But I don't know what it is. It's hard to place your finger on it. Because if I say that, I want to say what is a way to improve it or like, 
I don't know. I th- I think you kind of have to judge your society by the by the fruits of by the fr- fruits of like what your society is producing. But some people could point at different metrics. They could say, "Oh, GDP is at an all time high. We're still militarily dominant, or something like all these things." So. I just, I can't put my finger on why the sentiment in this country feels so negative, but. I mean, I think it's arguable to say that the media plays a role in that. Um, Social media, media, both. Um, Mm -hmm. People are generally want to gravitate towards drama, right? It's like (laughs) rule number one and like from, from like since junior high and like, you know, guys started liking girls, right? It's everything centered around drama, right? People just want to eat up drama. Um, Michael Jackson uh, scandal, whatever scandal, uh, OJ Simpson, Tiger Woods, right? We always just want everything just to be incredibly negative. And, you know, to show a hero on TV, like on national TV, to show someone like did something good, it's like, it's rare, right? I mean, I, I think we have to make a better... Um, better point of like complimenting one another like on a basic level but also showing when someone does something good or someone's skilled at something um yeah we don't really praise um skill or merit as much as potentially we used to or like in terms of maybe education or i mean you look at some of these old presidents they're fluent in like four or five languages like they've mastered all of these different <laughs> practices and things like that and i don't know i mean i don't say what you will about trump love him or hate him but i don't think he's necessarily like a Rhodes scholar i don't think he's fluent in latin and greek and stuff and maybe that's that's fine for leading a modern i mean he's probably really good at just like taking in a ton of data like just like constant like news streams and like spitting out what he needs to say or something like maybe that's his skill not being able to write latin but it's just like an interesting yeah interesting way that we're selecting um it's i think maybe the type of intelligence is changing that is that's successful in today's world Mm. maybe in correspondence with how technology is changing that's a very very interesting and good point i look at what we have right now in terms of like, you know, landscape architecture, just construction, whatever. Back then, you ever see the photo of like all these architects like just sitting in a room or like laying down mm-hmm. and just drawing, right? And before that, like architects read books, like they, they learned how to sculpt. They had all these like analog skills, right? They just could see proportions in a certain way that as a modern engineer or architect or whatever, you can never appreciate that. You, you, you were never brought up in that world where things were being done a certain way by hand and by a certain set of tools. Even writing now, I mean, you could just bang out a whole, you know, template, whatever outline, and you know, write out hundreds and thousands of words, right, throughout the night, and you know, have access to the entire internet. Um, the patience, the 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 reflection, the ability just to look out into a valley with a stream and a tree just to think, right? You're not afforded that luxury living in the suburbs or in the city. It's like, you got to go, 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 go. I need my, I need this thing done, you know, in this certain time. Otherwise, you know, I'm out of business. Yeah. So, 
The speed. The speed of politics. You gotta read. There you go. Virilio. His whole political philosophy is just based off of speed. And that things are speeding up. Lightning. So maybe we could maybe if I am feeling good, I'll like throw a couple quotes in the next one or something. I think we can wrap up for now. Oh, yeah. I just it's interesting, like you know, we do this outline, we do this thing, and I was thinking we would stick with like brass tacks and like debate like specific events or something or like something very coherent but it does seem like at the end of the day i don't know if it if this is um due to how i think or something or how both of us think but like it seems like all of these issues at least from the way that my mind is oriented they do at some point trickle down from like what your belief of hierarchy is what your values are as a person what your beliefs are and then they trickle down to the the actual events <laughs> so i think that's how we ended up more out there out in like philosophy religion values land but yeah i mean i'm not sure if this is accurate um i feel like politics is like the practical application of philosophies um I mean, you can't have the modern nation state, modern democracies without having a philosophical enlightenment, you know? Um, so I think it's an important prerequisite. And maybe that, I don't know, we're trying to put a bow on this, uh, this podcast. But, yeah. Well, yeah. okay. Sorry. Yeah. <laughs> brought some of yeah. Do you actually, do you believe that many or any politicians are, um, that they have ideals today, like that they have values that they actually follow to a T. Um, that they're principled. I do. That was the word I was looking for. I do. I do. Okay. Um, and uh, I, I think, I think most do, right. I think most, most do genuinely, genuinely care. Um, I, I think there is a little bit of a stigma of politicians, but I, I do think there are people out there and I've, I've met some personally and as much as I, I, I believe or I trust that they have ideals, I still have this rule of trust, but verify. So once someone becomes a, even if they're my long-term. Is that a Bush quote? Do you just quote George Bush? Is it a George Bush quote? <laughs> but verify. I've been using that for years. No, it's not. Hold on. Okay. Teddy Roosevelt. Wait. Teddy Roosevelt is dope. Sorry, sorry, sorry. This says it's Russian proverb, but Ronald Reagan popularized the term. Got it. Okay. After signing a treaty with Gorbachev. I knew it was somebody. I had some president. I had a boss who. Reagan. I had a boss who would say it, and I kind of picked it up from him. But, you know, it still (laughs) rings true. I mean, even if you were my long term friend, childhood friend, the moment that you become a politician. I understand the forces that are playing on you um, and the priorities that you have as an individual, that even though we may have a tight knit relationship, you are now, I would say kind of part of this like mathematical equation of politics, right? Where you're making some higher level decisions that are probably extremely taxing on the soul, right? I mean, if you're, if you're the commander in chief, right? And you're a nation at war, right? And you're sending sons and daughters at the front lines, Right, those aren't easy decisions um, 
unless you're a sociopath and you don't care, then, then it's easy. But I think for most people who do kind of reach that level of governance, um, th those are incredibly hard decisions to, to be making. Um, so I sometimes wonder if that level of politics doesn't select for some sort of like psychopathy or sociopathy, but I think that's a good that's just a throwaway it. comment. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully not. I hope not, but yeah, like, yeah, like um, Abraham Lincoln. I, I, I don't know. I, I have a very like inspired outlook towards people like Abraham Lincoln. I never perceived him as a. Yeah, that's good. Yeah. See, keep the myth alive. Yeah, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> like we were talking about earlier. Yeah, you know, honestly. <laughs> yeah. I think a lot of his um, most popular decisions were somewhat like practically motivated, but we don't need to go into that discussion here. We'll save that for for another one yeah. later. Um, what are the next? Is there anything we can tease for the next chapters? Tease for the next chapters. I mean, we could. One thing that's on my mind that I don't know if it's going to be brought up, but um, that I want to talk about at some point that I think is a problem with democracy as it's playing out right now is just like the time horizons. Like most people are making decisions that benefit them based on like, an election cycle or like an immediate personal gain versus. Um, long-term thinking so mm. don't comment on it we'll talk about it in the next podcast but yeah so I'll, I'll just read off the chapters coming up we have compromises with capitalism authenticity and meritocracy and making the demos safe for democracy and that's a question interesting awesome all right well we're approaching two hours let's wrap it up Thanks for joining. Yeah. So thanks. Thanks. Uh, thanks. Wayne. See you next time. Man. Yeah.